Hi, everyone. Welcome to the seventh episode in the ongoing series here on Sforum Chatter, Spanish Jewry Through the Ages. On this episode of the series, we jump ahead a little bit to 1391 and the riots of 1391, the infamous riots, uh, which is really somewhat of the beginning of the end for Spanish Jewry. And these riots were, many Jews were killed, many forcibly converted. This really led to the start of the Murano, Converso, New Christian, whichever term you want to use, and we'll get to that in later episodes, uh, phenomena. And uh, it was really terrible. So this episode uh, discusses the riots in the kingdom of Castile, uh, which is where they began. And the preacher, the Catholic preacher, uh, Ferrand Martinez, and you will hear a lot uh, about him uh, in the in this episode. And then next week's episode, Emirates Hashem, will be about um, the riots in uh, 1391 in Aragon, uh, the kingdom of Aragon. So, which the two, two different kingdoms uh, at that time. I will mention this episode. I think this is the I've held this the longest of any episode. It's about uh, two recorded this about two years ago, well before the idea of a series on Spanish Jewry. Uh, was conceived, but the I just recorded this as an idea and ended up holding it for whatever reason. And then at a certain time, I decided I was going to do a series on Spain, and so I held the episode. So here it is. Uh, but therefore, there's no allusion to the series in the recording, and uh, maybe we discuss some general things about Spain that you may have heard in other episodes. But it'll be a good recap uh, for purposes of the episode. So um, there's that. Now, I do want to thank the sponsor of the series, once again, as always, which is Glock Plumbing. So for all your service needs, big or small in New Jersey, with a full service division from boiler changeouts, main sewer line snakeouts, camera ink main lines, to a, sample, to a simple faucet leak, Glock Plumbing Service Division has you covered. Give them a call, 732-523-1836, extension 1. Again, 732-523-1836, extension 1. And uh, I want to thank them again. So if you have any plumbing needs or issues, please give them a call and uh, mention Sfarm Chatter Podcast. Uh, also, um, if anyone wants to sponsor an episode, you can uh, do so. Uh, there's a PayPal link in the show's notes. You can Zell, Chase Quickway, Chatter at gmail.com, as well as any suggestions and really comments and feedback, especially on the series. Are you enjoying it so far? Have you learned things? What do you think? Uh, what do you still want to hear about? Um, but as I said in, in the beginning, this will be on 1391, next week on 1391, and then we will move into the Inquisition. I know a couple of weeks ago we discussed the uh, Papal Inquisition, the kind of precursor to the Spanish Inquisition. So we're, this, this, the riots in 1391 really is the beginning of the Murano Conversos, and then that's really going to go tied together in with the Inquisition as we shall see. So with that, enjoy the episode. Enjoy is a kind of funny word when it's a very depressing uh, kind of thing, and uh, it's very bad for the Jews, but kind of, uh, hopefully the episode, you find the episode enlightening. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Sfarim Chatter Podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Professor Maya Soifer-Irish, who is an Associate Professor of History at Rice University. Um, she's the author of a book, Jews and Christians in Medieval Castile, um, but we will be discussing mainly the riots and uh, anti-Jewish riots in Spain in 1391. So uh, thank you very much, uh, Professor Soifer-Irish, for joining. Uh, you're welcome. I'm very happy to be here. So let's start off. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. All right. Well, um, I, um, I'm an immigrant. I came to this country uh, in my late teens. Uh, I was born in Moscow in what was then the Soviet Union, which dates me a little bit. And I grew up in Moscow in an academic 
family, uh, a family of scientists, uh, physicists mostly, and um, didn't like physics. Uh, so uh, I kind of planned to be a historian from an early age, and I uh, became interested in uh, medieval history, uh, mainly from our travels to uh, the Baltic republics, like Lithuania and Estonia and Latvia, where I saw castles for the first time. And castles were so ruined castles, of course, from, um, from the later Middle Ages, um, built there by the uh, Crusader orders. Uh, so I, I kind of had this, you know, long-lasting interest in medieval history. Um, I also liked music, uh, and I, I played the piano as a child, and I, I really liked medieval music. Um, so I came when I came to the U U.S., um, uh, I um, settled in a small town in Colorado and uh, attended a public, small public university there. And, uh, and that's where my interest in Jewish history and medieval history kind of merged. Uh, and uh, eventually I decided that I was going to dedicate my life to the study of uh, relations between Jews and Christians in the Middle Ages. Um, and it was at that time that, for the, that I acquired a copy, uh, I think it's a 1992 edition of Yitzhak Baer's A History of the Jews and Christian Spain. Um, and I read it. I didn't understand um, about maybe a quarter of it. Not, not, not the language. My English was already pretty good, but um, I didn't really understand the concepts. I didn't understand, um, you know, the, the, the larger context of Spanish history and Jewish history. But the book was fascinating. And I, I saw that it had a lot, a lot of information uh, that would take a while to process. And I was completely right because I'm still processing that information. This book is, you know, sitting permanently on my desk. With, with lots of different sticky notes that I consult constantly. I'm oversimplifying this a little bit, but um, eventually that's what I decided to do. Um, I tried different periods of history. I um, also liked uh, Jewish history in the Soviet Union, but then decided that it's medieval history that really excites me, uh, medieval Jewish history. Um, so I, I, after getting my degree, I applied to several graduate schools. Um, and eventually decided I was accepted at Princeton University and I wanted to study with uh, William Chester Jordan, um, who is uh, primarily known for, uh, for his work on medieval French history. Um, and, but, but he kind of developed a side interest in the relationship between the Capetian monarchy and the Jews. And he published a book on that subject, which I bought and read and was really impressed. And I decided, okay, this is um, one of the people I can study with. So when I got my acceptance letter, I was very, very happy. So this was kind of um, uh, a choice that I made based both on the reputation of the school and of course the, the fact that I would be studying with Bill Jordan. So when I was there in graduate school, I read a lot of medieval history, and, but I especially liked French and Spanish. At some point, I decided to focus on the Jews of Northern Castile, which was kind of an unorthodox choice. When I looked around, what I mostly saw is, uh, you know, fellow scholars studying Eastern Spain, because um, Spain was not a unified kingdom in the Middle Ages. There was Castile kind of in the middle. Of course, there was Portugal. 
uh, and and the, in the east there is uh, the kingdom of Aragon, Catalonia, and that is just Christian Spain because there was also the Islamic part of Spain. I wanted to work on Christian Spain, but I saw the field of Aragon, Catalonia very crowded. Everyone was working, seemingly working on it, um, and that is because there is a lot more documentation that was preserved in the archives of um, uh, the Kingdom of Aragon, the Royal Archive, uh, as opposed to Castile, where there's very little documentation. So when I decided to do Castile, I kind of condemned myself to fairly limited uh, documentary basis. Um, so why I did that, I still don't know for sure. <laughs> I was stupid, no. Um, I, I, I just like the challenge, I guess. I like the challenge. Plus, I was uh, really encouraged uh, by the work of another scholar whose name is Teofil Ruiz, and he's a he he just retired from UCLA, um, and he dedicated his life to the study of Castile, medieval Castile, especially its northern part. So, after having read his work, I decided, okay, this is going to be the area that I am going to focus on. Um, so I, after getting my PhD, I spent three years as a postdoctoral fellow, um, a teaching fellow in the IHAM program at Stanford University, a program that doesn't exist anymore. They reframed it and uh, reinvented it in some way, but it, it's a program for freshmen uh, students at Stanford. Um, so I helped teach classes there for three years and then um, all the while being on academic markets. And eventually I I was offered the position at Rice. Um, so I started at Rice in um, July of uh, 2010. And in 2016, I, I published my book uh, based on my dissertation, um, Jews and Christians in Medieval Castile, Tradition, Coexistence, and Change. And it's, uh, it's based on a lot of archival material, also some published material, and of course, a lot of secondary scholarship, both in English and in, in Spanish. And um, so the book examines the relationship between the Jewish communities, the church and the monarchy, uh, kind of the big power, the, the two big power players in Castile and, and, and the Jews of Castile. Um, and also the municipal councils, that is the town councils that actually were in charge in day, you know, day-to-day -day life in, in the small towns and cities in Castile. Um, so I'm really, I was really interested in kind of power relationship between um, the big kind of Christian political entities and, and the Jews. Um, so the chronological um, period is between the 11th century and the middle of the 14th century. Um, and uh, I also published an article um, that kind of is, I think it's the most cited article uh, that, um, that I have ever written. Uh, it's called uh, Beyond Convivencia. And um, it's uh, only, it's, it's related to my book, but it's kind of more of a historiographic um, article, which examines the usefulness of the concept of convivencia, which is this idea that Jews, Christians, and Muslims coexisted peacefully in, uh, in Spain in the Middle Ages. And it's often romanticized and idealized. So I, my article questions the utility of this concept for interfaith relations in Christian Spain. 
So that's uh, kind of my academic journey up to my second project. Right, which has to do with, like I mentioned, the, uh, I believe, which we'll be talking about, the riots, right, a little bit. Um, right, so, right. So I guess before we get to the riots, I think probably you mentioned a little bit how Spain was not, you know, unified at, at that time. There were there were the Moors, there were the Muslims, and then there was there was the uh, Kingdom of Castile, Aragon, Leon, others. So maybe we discuss that a little bit. I, I, I was t- talking to you before I started recording and saying how interestingly, I don't know, somehow I didn't end up doing any episodes yet on Spain, which is uh, mm-hmm. pretty interesting. I don't know how that happened. So there's that. And, and mainly we'll be discussing, you know, the history of the Jews of Spain until this time. I guess that's mainly what we should really focus on with, you know, explaining a little bit about the actual geography and history of Spain a little bit as well. Right. Um, so I will talk mainly about the, the Jews of Spain. Um, of course, Spain is a very ancient place. Uh, was part of the Roman Empire in antiquity, um, a very Romanized province of the Roman Empire. Um, so Jews settled there, uh, we, we are assuming since the late antiquity. Uh, we don't really have very much information about, about Jews in uh, Roman Hispania. Um, but we do know that there was a Jewish population in Spain at the time of the Visigoths. So uh, once the Roman Empire kind of disintegrated uh, slowly and uh, the, the Visigothic people um, uh, came to control uh, the peninsula, they established a kingdom there. Um, first, they were Arians. Later, they converted to Catholic Christianity. And of course, we do hear about persecutions of the Jewish communities under the Visigoths. So it's, it's a pretty uh, well-known um, uh, part of Jewish history. Although, strangely, we don't have very much information about what exactly happened because all we know is all the, all the documents that survive are mainly legal codes. And so those legal codes and uh, decisions of the church councils, they all take a very hard line on Jews and essentially state that all Jews have to convert to uh, Catholicism. Uh, and then it, it discriminates, they discriminate even the convert, uh, against the converted Jews. Um, and uh, so we are assuming that uh, either all the Jews of Visigothic Spain had been converted to Christianity or they somehow left um, or they somehow hid from sight in the kind of secretly practiced Judaism but it still can, continues to be a very debated uh, subject in historiography. But of course, eventually, as as um, as we know, the Visigoths were defeated by the invading um, Arabs and Berbers from North Africa, mainly a Berber army in 711 that crossed the what what is today known as the Straits of Gibraltar, easily defeated the Visigothic king and established uh, their own kingdom. Uh, Capital was now in Cordoba. And then very, very slowly we begin to hear about Jewish communities. Um, at first, very, very little. Of course, the majority of the uh, population of this new entity uh, called in Arabic Al-Andalus, which is a Spain in Arabic population, was Christian. Uh, and so Arabs and Berbers only constituted a very small percentage of this population. But then over time, more and more Christians converted to Islam although a small Christian population remained. Some Christians decided to immigrate. They left Al-Andalus and they went north to join their Christian co-religionists. Um, you know, some of them were descendants of people who had fled from, from the um, Islamic invasion and they, they went to northern, extreme north of Spain to the 
Asturias and Cantabria and Galicia. And they established small principalities there. That in addition also to the county of Catalonia and the emerging kingdom of Aragon. So those are those became kind of the that became the foothold for the Christians in medieval Spain. Um, so at first those those little kingdoms were extremely small and not very powerful. Um, all they could do is basically survive. While in the south, of course, we have this uh, blossoming um, uh, kingdom um, that was uh, that eventually became independent from the rest of the caliphate. We have the Umayyad caliphate uh, first, uh, the Umayyad uh, kingdom, and then the caliphate in Spain again with the capital in Cordoba. In in the caliphate, so we're talking now about about tenth century. Um, actually, the caliph kind of the, the, the ruler of Al Andalus proclaimed himself a caliph in 929, and that's when we start hearing for the first time about uh, about Jews advancing to very high positions in power of power at the uh, at the court of the Cordoban ruler, um, and and. Uh, Especially um, someone like Hasda ibn Shaprut, who became uh, the advisor to Abd al-Rahman III, the, the one who declared himself himself a caliph. So uh, ibn Shaprut was a very uh, talented man, a physician and a translator and a kind of a, what we might call the Renaissance man. Um, so he kind of laid the tradition for... Uh, the Jews to become to kind of enter the administration of 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 the caliphate, even though they were consider, considered dimmies, that is the the second class uh, citizens. They had to pay the Jewish community, like the Christian community, had to play, pay the jizya, the, that is the, the capitation tax, and sub, kind of submit to certain humiliating conditions in exchange for their right to practice their religion. Um, so Jews technically were not supposed to have positions of power, such as, you know, the head minister or a tax collector and so forth. But many Jews did, in fact, acquire those posts. Not everyone was happy with that. And there were criticisms of Jews um, getting too much power in violation of uh, the uh, special agreement called the, the Pact of Umar that limited the Dimis in many ways. Um, and uh, the next chapter of Jewish history in Spain uh, happens in the next century, in the 11th century, when the caliphate falls apart, um, in, and it falls in, apart into these numerous uh, little kingdoms called the Taifa states, or the party states. And um, so there were many, many of them, uh, centered on the major cities like uh, Seville and Cordoba and Badajoz and Deni and so forth, Zaragoza, Toledo and so forth. Um, and so each of them was uh, ruled by a dynasty, either an Arab dynasty or a Berber dynasty. And at that point, once again, we hear of Jewish advisors taking fairly high positions in the government. The most famous example, of course, is the uh, the Taifa of Granada, where uh, Samuel ibn Nagrela uh, became an advisor to the local king, Emir, and apparently he well he was a, he was a, 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 he was again a, a very talented man, a diplomat, a, um, a patron of uh, 
Jewish poetry, um, and apparently even a military leader. He 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 led uh, the, the 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 Granadan army into battle against the neighboring states. Then, of course, the famous as the famous story goes, um, uh, his son Joseph did not quite match the diplomatic talents of his father, and. Uh, eventually ended up on the wrong side of the court intrigue, and uh, he was uh, murdered in 1066 by a mob in Granada, and also uh, alongside him perished, uh, we don't know how many, but probably several hundred uh, Jews in the city of Granada. I can't imagine that the entire population was eliminated, but there was a significant loss of life. But overall, you know, uh, Jews' life was uh, under the, uh, in the caliphate, and then in the Taifa period in Al-Andalus was fairly peaceful, uh, aside from the from these episodes of, of violence. And of course, then things changed significantly in the late 11th and 12th century when um, the, the, first the Almoravids and then the Almohads, uh, the Berber dynasties from North Africa, invade Al-Andalus. And um, they have a very different they're not quite the same. I don't have time to go into the differences between the Almoravids and Almohads, but they, they have a much more kind of a, a, a vision of a more pure Islam, uh, kind of going back to the to the basics, to the uh, original intent of the of Muhammad and you know the founders of Islam. Uh, and the uh, Almohads go even further and they kind of repudiate the traditional Islam and uh, impose their own vision of, you know, the unity of God. And especially under the Almohads, um, Christian and Jewish communities, this is already the 12th century, Christian and Jewish communities suffer persecutions and uh, many of them um, are converted by force to, Christ to, to Islam, I'm sorry. Of course, the most famous example being apparently um, Moses Maimonides, who may have um, converted to Islam before escaping to North Africa and eventually to Egypt. Um, so, not, so some Jews at this point decide to immigrate to, uh, to, to the Maghreb, that is North Africa or to Egypt, like Moses Maimonides. But many others instead head north. And in the north, there are these expanding Christian kingdoms. There is the kingdom of Castile Leon, uh, and, uh, and also in the 12th century, Catalonia and Aragon unite and become one kingdom. So that's where we start seeing growing and flourishing Jewish communities in Christian Spain. And they are welcomed by the Christian rulers because they need immigrants. Um, they're not particularly populous states, especially Leon. So the rulers, the kings, view them, view the Jewish immigrants kind of as an investment in the economic prosperity of their kingdoms, um, which was not really a new thing. It's uh, the same thing happened in Northern Europe uh, at some point under the Carolingians. And so the Christians, of course, are still you know, engaged in military operations against Muslims. For example, in 1085, the king of Castile-Leon takes Toledo, and Toledo has a very large Jewish population. So this is when, really, in the middle of the 11th century, we start hearing about these about this, uh, Jewish communities, and they're given very favorable terms because Christian kings need administrators. Um, they need help 
with you know the process of colonization. Also, Jews from Al-Andalus speak Arabic, and so they can act as as cultural and linguistic mediators in Spain. So their skills are very valued, and just like we have seen in Al-Andalus, in Castilleon and also in Aragon, Catalonia, we see Jewish advisors to Christian kings, administ- Jewish administrators who act as diplomats, as advisors, as uh, eventually as tax collectors, as physicians, because um, while well, the Arab science was really the most advanced science, science in the 11th and 12th centuries, and so all the best physicians were trained in, in Spain, in southern Spain, under um, in Al-Andalus. So, um, yeah, there are some certain similarities between how Jews are viewed in Christian Spain and in Northern Europe. Uh, in both places, the kings begin to treat their Jewish population as a part of the royal treasury. So they call them, not right away, but by the end of the 12th century, they call them servi regis, that is the servicemen, uh, servants of the king. It does not mean that they are um, like peasant serfs with no freedom and no and no property of their own, uh, but their freedom is certainly limited, and they have to pay the crown special taxes. Um, actually, both Jews and and subordinate Muslims who decide to settle in Christian Spain, called mudejars, they also have a, to pay to pay special tax, and. The kings have a special jurisdiction over them, meaning that the kings ultimately have the last say in uh, what happens to these Jewish communities, whether they stay or they're expelled. Um, you know, they are the only ones who give them, can give them privileges. There are some exceptions, but for the most part, Jews belong to the crown. Um, and in fact, the, the customary law of Castile in the early 13th century states that uh, the Jews are the kings, although they might be under the jurisdiction of magnates or their knights or other men, or under the jurisdiction of monasteries, all of the Jews ought to be the kings under his protection and for his service. Uh, And that is uh, very important because this special relationship between the Castilian monarchy and the Jews uh, it continues to be an issue in Castile and becomes kind of a um, be- becomes the subject of a very intense political struggle um, in Castile and also in uh, Aragon, Catalonia. So the, the, this, this this first century and a half of Jewish life in Castile was fairly peaceful, although there were some episodes of violence, occasional violence, um, especially, and this is kind of a recurring theme in Castile, especially during the times of royal minorities. That is when the previous king dies and and leaves behind um, either no sons at all, maybe there's one point there was a daughter, Queen Uraka, who who took over in the early 12th century, or he leaves behind a son who is very young and cannot yet uh, rule on his own. And so there is a regency council of some sort. And this is always kind of a very uh, troubling uh, time for the Jewish communities because the Jews are associated with the monarchy, but the monarchy is weak and unable to protect the Jews. That's That always spells trouble um, 
And as I'm going to show, as I'm going to say later, it also played a role in the Soviet 91 riots as well. Right. Okay. So I think that that more or less, I mean, like I said, you can't cover all of it. There's obviously a lot more to, to cover here as well. So um, leading up to 1391, I think 1391 is interesting. I'll just, I'll just speak for myself being someone, you know, I think what everyone, a lot, everyone, a lot of people are familiar with the 1492 expulsion, obviously, um, uh, and, and, and then the Portugal and the forced conversion there. Um, but 1391 really was, I guess, the beginning of the end, right? Um, I guess you would say, or it was, I, maybe that's the wrong way to put it, but I think that was really, I don't want to speak for you, but I think that was, I guess, a big incident that was unknown, I guess is a better way to put it, um, and the riot. So I guess, to, you know, kind of, it's at the table, so to speak. Explain what happened, um, what led up to exactly the leading up to the 1391 riots and what happened there. Yeah, uh, this is kind of my um, my great ambition to try to explain the riots of 1391. So far, it has not been done adequately, and, I, and I'm not sure that I will be able, like 100%, provide a convincing explanation. Uh, all, I, all I hope to do is to kind of give people food for thought, um, maybe at least make some major progress on this issue. One of the reasons why not much progress has been made is that because it's because um, lately historians have really stayed away from subjects like that, like 1391 and anti-Jewish violence. You know, it all goes back to um, kind of this historiographic uh, battle over the lacrimose conception of Jewish history. Um, you're probably familiar with it. Um, Salah Baron, who was a very, very important uh, Jewish historian, American historian at Columbia University, um, wrote a very important fundamental work on the history of Jews in the Middle Ages, in which he attacked um, people like, well, he didn't attack them, him personally, but he attacked this vision of history that Yitzhak Baer, especially, um, uh, held dear, and that is that Jewish life in diaspora uh, actually, for the most part, was peaceful. And uh, Jews found accommodations both in Islamic society and the Christian society. And so, thanks to Salah Baron, um, we were able to get you know, the, the historians, his, his, his students, and the students of their students eventually gave us a much more co complete picture of uh, Jewish life in uh, medieval Europe. But at the cost of diverging attention from those episodes when things did not, did not go well, um, when, when there was violence and there was persecution. So 1391 for me is, um, is, is definitely a clear example of when things break down. And you, you can't say it just happened out of nowhere with no, no warning. There were no warning signs. Nothing, absolutely nothing. Just suddenly things exploded. Everything was fine up until that point. Um, and this is where my project comes in. Uh, I am trying to, so in this new book, I am, uh, I'm exploring the politics of persecution. In fact, this is part of the title of my book, The Politics of Persecution in, uh, in Medieval Spain or Medieval Castile. I haven't quite decided yet. Um, but it's going to focus on Seville, especially because this is where the first riot happened in, uh, in the summer of 1391. And I have this basic premise um, that the persecution of Jews was not something spontaneous or inevitable even. 
um, that for those in power, especially the local elites, you know, those people who sat on the municipal council and controlled um, local politics, but also the local ecclesiastical elites, people in the cathedral chapter, for example. Um, so for them, this kind of Jew hatred, this anti-Semitism was a means to an end. So they, they played at anti-Semitism in order to achieve their own ends, their own goals, like short-term short political and economic and spiritual goals. And those, you know, spiritual, economic, and political, they, they were not necessarily separate. They were all tied up together. Um, so, so they pursued this political goal. So it, it was really not about some drastic measure, you know, like the final solution, like in Nazi Germany, like a, a killing all the Jews or expelling them from the kingdom. Although this, this idea was present in, at least in the 14th century. Uh, but for most of them, they were just pursuing their short-term political goals. And uh, anti-Semitism was a very useful political tool. Um, so I'm looking both at the goals and the methods of persecution. Um, uh, and um, I'm arguing they were all rather mundane and did not necessarily and always involve violence. So it could be something like asking the king, the king, because the king, of course, has a special jurisdiction over Jews, to restrict privileges of the Jewish communities or alhamas, as they were called, the Jewish alhamas, or adopting some harsh measures to enforce the collection of an ecclesiastical tax. Uh, which was what happened in Seville when the cathedral chapter wanted to collect the special tax called the Treinta Dineros, the 30 Dineros, which was supposed to symbolize the 30 pieces of silver uh, that, uh, for which Judas sold um, Jesus Christ. So it was supposed to remind the Jews of their crime, but it was also a very useful um, source of income for the, for the local cathedral chapter. And they, of course, were all about enforcing their privileges and uh, getting their way. And it was a fairly young cathedral chapter. And so they wanted to kind of put their foot down and uh, establish their presence in the community. So um, I'm also exploring the petitions of the urban representatives at the Cortes, which was uh, sort of like a Castilian parliament. It was a representative, representative assembly that gathered was called by the king uh, occasionally to come together and um, usually to authorize taxes uh, uh, throughout the kingdom. Um, so the king would ask for taxes um, and the representatives would then uh, play politics with the king and they would ask for these anti-Jewish measures, among other things. They would ask for other things as well. But um, these anti-Jewish petitions became a very popular way for the urban representatives to, to get their way because Jews were not a popular minority. And so uh, getting whatever they wanted at the Jews' expense, they did, discovered this in the early 14th century or so, was a very effective way uh, to kind of to get the king to listen. And the king would not always approve these measures, but he had to negotiate, he would give in in some ways, he would give they would give them he would give them something while saying no to other petitions. So it was kind of a complicated political game. 
And so that, that is what I'm talking about in this book. So the ordinary nature of these persecutions. But then, of course, as we get closer to 1391, um, the potential for violence definitely increases. Um, so when I say, you know, it was the means to an end, eventually it becomes the end. So the end becomes uh, killing Jews. I mean, it's very hard to pinpoint exactly when that happens. But it happens, I, I would say, sometimes very, very close to 1391. Another, another very important event that happens, and this is uh, in the middle of the 14th century. So there is, a, there is a, a civil war in Castile. Um, uh, and they, a man by the name of Enrique or Henry uh, Trastamara, who is the half-brother of the reigning king, Pedro I, the king of Castile, um, challenges Pedro for, for the throne. So Enrique is, a, is an illegitimate child of, uh, they both they have the same father, Alfonso XI, the king of Castile. Um, but Enrique challenges Pedro for the throne. And uh, he is supported by the kingdom of France. Um, and this is during the Hundred Years' War between England and, and France. And so Enrique gets the support of France. Pedro gets the support of England. Or those, are, those two are enemies, right? Um, so there's a civil war in Castile with the participation of foreign troops, uh, which are taking a break from the Hundred Years' War. So in the 1360s, in the uh, kind of mid-1360s, Enrique, among other things, adopts this um, way of, of gathering support for his cause. He sends out anti-Jewish proclamations in northern Castile, accusing, accusing the king, Pedro, his enemy, of favoring Jews and Muslims and letting them have too much power over the king and consequently over Christians. And so Enrique is arguing this is the subversion of the natural order. This is against, um, well, it's, it's, it's against God. It's against the divine order to put Jews and Muslims over Christians. And so these proclamations are very popular. And so it, it, both the foreign mercenaries and the local people in Northern Castile um, attack the Jews, and uh, there are some killings, mostly mostly just um, uh, dispilations. They're despoiled of their property and so forth in this violence. And of course, once Enrique wins, he eventually wins. He personally kills his half brother uh, with a dagger, apparently. Um, Enrique um, he goes back to the way things had been with regard to Jews. That is, he he has his own. Jewish advisors, he has Jewish tax collectors, and everything seemingly goes back, except things are not quite the same. They can't quite go back to the way they, they had been. Um, because, you know, giving too much power, too much trust to Jews, uh, it, it can feed this anti-royal anti -royal sentiments. You don't, if you're a king in the late 14th century in Castile, you don't want to be known as the friend of Jews. So the kings are facing a pretty stark dilemma. How do they protect their patrimony? That is, Jews are part of the royal treasury, right? But at the same time, they have to present this image to 
there are people that know they're not friends of Jews and they're, if you know, if, if it comes down to taking sides, of course, they're not on the sides of the Jew, side of the Jews, they're on the side of the people, the, especially the local municipal councils. So that makes it that much harder for the kings to negotiate this, this issue of the Jews. And this is where Ferran Martinez comes in. Okay, so the, we, we, you can go and discuss uh, discuss him, Ferran Martinez. I guess to mention, you know, who he is. Probably, I'm gonna I'm gonna guess this. Most listeners have never heard of him, and and I, you know, and I guess once we discuss him, already, you know, you will get to discussing the actual riots. We've mentioned a bunch of times. Obviously, people can understand the riots, but we'll explain what exactly happened to the Jewish community. But for now, we'll discuss uh, Ferran Martinez. Okay, so Ferran, you know, when people say. 1391 riots, they immediately think of Ferran Martinez. He's kind of the face of these riots. And for a very good reason, you know, I spent a lot of time with the documents uh, on 1391 and right before. And I have to say that he did play a disproportionate role in uh, not causing the riots, perhaps, but um, he kind of prepared the mood for the violence to to erupt. So who, who was he? I mean, very little is known about him. Because people, you know, his historians and the general public, they usually say Ferran Martinez, Ferran Martinez, but they don't really know who he is. And they make all kinds of assumptions. There's a lot of misinformation um, on Wikipedia and other parts of the internet about Ferran Martinez. So, so he, he was the Archdeacon of Ethica, um, which was an honorary title. So he did not really involve any administrative responsibilities. Uh, he was a... Um, uh, a canon at a secular canon at the cathedral chapter of Seville, a cathedral chapter that already had by that time a pretty long history with the local Jewish community, and not all of it very um, amicable. Um, so he he was most likely born in Carmona. Uh, Carmona is a very small town, very picturesque. If you want to visit it today, it preserves its medieval character in many ways. It's a town about 20 miles northeast of Seville. Um, and uh, he, uh, the, the reason I say he was born there is because his uh, last testament, his will, mentions some property that he inherited from his grandparents in Carmona, meaning probably that he's from there. Not 100% sure. So he was most likely born into a class of urban knights. Um, so these were non-noble uh, elites. They were of not of aristocratic origin, but mostly of uh, some sort of mercantile origin, which means that their ancestors were traders, merchants, um, who uh, who made it their way into urban elites thanks to their wealth, because they could uh, they could uh, purchase uh, a horse and military equipment, weapons, and so forth in order to participate in the town militia and uh, fight either foreign enemies or um, Christian enemies or um, Muslim enemies on the king's behalf. So so not not the high aristocracy, but rather kind of the local local elites. Um, And uh, these are the people who control the municipal governments in Seville and in in other places. And the king actively encouraged the, the kind of the growth of this class because they provided a buffer against the aristocrats, the high nobility, who in the 14th century gave the king a lot of trouble. They were 
constant, in almost a constant state of rebellion against the king. So these local urban elites could counterbalance the power of the aristocrats. So they were considered kind of the backbone of the monarchy. And they controlled most of the uh, urban governments. So that's kind of the, I think, the social strata from which uh, Ferran Martinez comes. So he he was not, and I, I have to I have to repeat this, he was not a monk, and he was not a Dominican friar, he was not a Franciscan friar. He was not a confessor of uh, the queen mother of Aragon. I think I've found that somewhere as well. So these are all you know, little pieces of misinformation that are floating around. And the reason this is important is because if Ferran Martinez were a monk, that is, if he was a member of religious orders, he would have been required to uh, renounce his property and um, take a vow of poverty and so forth. But he did not do that. Um, he was probably an ordained priest. So so he could administer the sacraments and so forth, although I don't have a proof of that. Um, but he was definitely a licensed preacher. And he had a lot of property. He was quite prosperous. He possessed um, lots of uh, homes and warehouses and shops in both Carmona and Seville. At one point, he acquired a very large estate in a very rich countryside called La Campina near Seville. Um, Seville is surrounded by these wheat fields and uh, vineyards and um, olive, um, you know, olive trees and so forth. Very, very rich countryside. So he purchased a pretty large estate and then he donated the estate to the cathedral chapter, which is almost a requirement for entering the cathedral chapter as a canon, which kind of tells you that all the canons were <laughs> very prosperous people. They were really members of the elites. You could not just enter the cathedral chapter as a canon with no property at all, or even significant property. And then he also founded a, a hospital um, called the Hospital of St. Martha. St. Martha was his favorite saint. And I could talk about why, but why she was his favorite, but I think I'll save it for the book. Uh, but this hospital was uh, supposed to serve the needs of poor priests, uh, poor, el poor and elderly priests, and was just steps away from the uh, Cathedral of Seville. You can still visit the little Plaza de, de Santa Marta, very, very close to the cathedral. So the point is that, you know, Ferran Martinez is usually portrayed as this unhinged fanatic, maybe even some insane person and nothing is further from the truth i mean he definitely hated jews there's no question about it he had this burning hatred of of jews but uh, his actions were actually quite methodical and quite premeditated um so he didn't just do things because he lost his mind he actually did them to pursue certain goals so, for example, at one point, I, and I found this in the archival documentation, at one point he asked the Archbishop of Seville to demolish, to demolish a synagogue that was apparently built outside of the Jewish quarter. You know, the Jewish quarter in Seville was surrounded by a wall, uh, but 
this synagogue was built or it was already an existing house that was converted into a synagogue outside of the walls of the Huderia, or the Jewish quarter. And Martinez asked the archbishop to demolish it. And the interesting thing is that the synagogue was likely very, very close, like a stone's throw away from Martinez's hospital. So Martinez was expanding his hospital and acquiring properties next to it because it had to be, you know, self-sustaining. I think he wanted to make a warehouse for making olive oil right nearby. And there was the synagogue. It was definitely stood in the way of expanding his 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 project. So so he was he was not an irrational man. He knew what he was doing. Um, he was a very capable administrator. He he had several positions in the cathedral chapter having to do with finances, money, money management. Um, he was a mayordomo or a butler at some point, which means he was in, in charge of, uh, you know, provisioning uh, the, the, the canons in the cathedral. And uh, he also was very well connected. He, uh, he had friends and family among these urban knights, these urban elites who controlled the government, the municipal government. And uh, I, I, I read several wills um, by some of the members of these elites who chose Ferran Martinez to administer their estates after their death. Um, so he, he had this reputation for being good with money and finances and managing property. He was a businessman, essentially. He was a, a businessman who happened to be also a canon at the cathedral chapter. So he, he, had, he had his feet in both worlds, the ecclesiastical, the religious world, and the secular world. And he constantly went back and forth. And one good example of that is that he was picked by the archbishop, appointed by the archbishop to be an ecclesiastical judge called the provisor for the archdiocese of Seville. But he was also picked by the king, and this is not a not very well-known fact at all. He was picked by the king, was appointed by the king to serve as a royal judge uh, on the appeals court, the local court in Seville. Now, you might ask, what about the division of jurisdiction between ecclesiastical jurisdiction and secular jurisdiction, the king and the church? Well... Um, the division was definitely not impermeable. It was the, the line was very thin. And Ferran Martinez is a good example of that. He combined both ecclesiastical power and secular power from the king. And he used both of them against the Jews. That's the tragedy here. So now I can talk a little bit about Ferran Martinez's activities before 1391. Ferran Martinez comes up in the records in the early 1370s, various, various capacities. But then um, mostly having to do with property, property exchanges, donations, and, uh, and uh, him buying property. He loved to buy real estate. He was, in a way, a, a businessman and a real estate develop, developer, in a way. Yeah. Um, but in 1377, um, we know that the Jewish community, the Alhama, uh, complained to the king, uh, who at that point was still Enrique, Enrique Trastamara, Enrique II, 
that Ferran Martinez was going around Seville preaching sermons um, that were so inflammatory that Jews were fearful that the people would be provoked into assaulting and robbing them. And he also, as a royal judge, um, because he presided over this court of appeals, um, he deliberately sought out lawsuits that involved Jews, even if the cases were not specifically assigned to him. And he passed judgments that were very biased uh, against the Jews and in favor of Christians. Um, and worse yet, he completely disregarded um, the king's letter that had forbidden him to judge such cases, uh, anything that had to do with Jewish affairs. And so, in uh, you know, a lot of this also has to do with the king and whether he was present in Seville or whether he had gone away, because, you know, royal powers, power in the Middle Ages was projected in a very personal way. So if the king was away, the potential for anarchy was so much greater. So in August of 1377, Enrique left the city. And that's when Ferran Martinez attempted to pass his first kind of anti-Jewish measure in the archdiocese. So he was the provisor, that is the judge in the archdiocese. So he used his authority to convince other members of the chapter cathedral chapter, to uh, issue letters, and which then were sent to the town councils in the Archdiocese of Seville, ordering them under the threat of excommunication to, re to prohibit Jews uh, from settling and living in their towns. So this sounds very much like 1391, except this is 1377. This is long before 1391. So uh, I think that he may have tried to provoke some sort of anti-Jewish violence or anti-Jewish action at this point, except it didn't work. Uh, maybe the people were not sufficiently radicalized and the king was not dead. He was merely away. Uh, the one who was dead was actually the archbishop. The archbishop at this point just died and his seat was still vacant. So that, that, was, that was the opportunity that Ferran Martinez used. That's what I mean when I say he was very calculating. He, his actions were very much premeditated. So there was no riot. And uh, the king, Enrique, eventually came back to Seville. And so that kind of, that measure went nowhere. The interesting bit of information that I found in the archives, I mean, I can't speculate about Martinez's motivations, but... There was this one little piece of information just about a year before, before this happened in 1376. I found a document that in Carmona, which was, you know, the home, home, home city, his home place for Ferran Martinez. In Carmona, a Jewish woman, a Jewish widow acquired a house right next door to Martinez's. She acquired this house at an auction because the previous owner or owners had defaulted on their debts to a Jewish moneylender. And so the houses or house was auctioned off and it went to the Jewish widow. So now Martinez had a Jewish neighbor in Carmona. And then lo and behold, a year later, he issues this order, which was not followed at this point, 
but the order that Jews cannot settle in towns like Carmona, in these small towns in the Archdiocese of Seville. Was this a coincidence? Maybe, maybe not. But it definitely sheds at least some light on his motivations. This is kind of how it went on, you know, Ferran Martinez continued his provocations, his preaching, his anti-Jewish preaching. Um, he acquired this reputation over the next several years of, over the next decade, actually. He, he, this went on for about 10 years. He just went around um, making lots of anti-Jewish statements, disregarding royal letters to, to the municipal council, to the cathedral chapter that he should be restrained. Um, and then the Jewish Alhama became really worried about what might happen. And um, they decided there was already a different king at this point. So they, the Alhama decided to take Ferran Martinez to court. And uh, this is uh, the famous document, um, the, the, not exactly a transcript, but um, it's a, a, a record of the court proceedings in uh, February of uh, 1388. This is a court called Tribunal del Alcazar, uh, which was a special court established fairly recently at that point, um, which met twice a week before the gates of the Alcazar, which is the royal, royal palace, which you can still visit today in Seville. The task of this court was to hear the complaints by the townsmen against the various municipal officials. And so Ferran Martinez was a municipal official. He was a royal judge. And so his actions fell under the jurisdiction of this court. That's why he was summoned and the Jewish Alhama presented their complaint against Martinez. And you can actually read about it. I have published a translation of, part of, of a part of this document uh, on, a, on a website called Open Iberia America. A teaching anthology, um, and it's called Ferran Martinez's speech at the Tribunal del Alcázar in Seville on the 19th of February, 1388. Um, it's not the entire document, it's just the end of it where Martinez presents, um, gives a speech in his own defense. But the first part of the proceedings on the first day mainly consisted of um, uh, the Jewish representative um, kind of presenting his, uh, the Alhamas complaint against Ferran Martinez. The representative was a wealthy uh, Jewish uh, cloth merchant. And then all three letters that the royal court had sent to Seville asking the local officials to restrain Martinez and to prohibit him from going around and arousing the populace against the Jews. So these three letters were read out loud. So that's how we know what Martinez had been up to. You know, one of the main points that the Alhama made against Martinez is that he had no jurisdiction over the Jewish community because the Jews of Castile, for the most part, belonged to the royal treasury. They were part of the royal treasury. And so only the king had the authority to make any changes in the condition of the Jews or, you know, tell them what to do, where to settle and not where not to settle whether to construct a new synagogue or not, only the king had that, that right. And so Martinez was transgressing essentially against the king, which is exactly what he was doing. Um, because any action against the Jews was also 
and actually against the cane. And everyone knew that and everyone understood that. That's why it's so hard to disentangle religious motivations from political motivations. And I think ultimately you can't. You have to analyze them together, you know, even, even though it's a pretty difficult task. So at the end of the proceedings, on the second day, about a week after the, the, three, the three letters from the king were read, Ferran Martinez came back to the court and he gave a speech, uh, an anti-Jewish speech, which is what I translate here on this website uh, from the medieval Castilian. There's also Spanish translation, uh, if anyone is interested. Um, I can't spend too much time on the speech. It's, it's fairly... Um, it's, it's fairly primitive, but at the same time, fairly complicated. Uh, if you kind of go by line by line and examine various, his various expressions and his various references, he, mainly he uh, references the, the Bible, both what, what he would call the Old Testament and the New Testament. Mainly the Old Testament, that is the Torah. He, he, he refers to it constantly to argue that Jews had been criminals. He, he, essentially, he's making a legal case against the Jews. He's saying, you're accusing me of violating the law. Well, wait a second. The Jews are the criminals. They had been violating the law of Moses. Uh, they have executed their own prophets. They have disobeyed God constantly since, since the time of Moses. Um, and they're still doing it. They're still the main, their main crime is that they go to the king and they lie to the king uh, and they entangle the king in, in their lies. Essentially, what follows from this speech is that you can't trust the king on the question of the Jews. He may have power over the Jews, but he's not going to do the right thing because the Jews had been lying to the king all these years. And this is kind of a theme that comes up in the records over and over again. You know, the bad Jewish advisors and how they, uh, they, they, they whisper things into the king's ear and they misrepresent the facts. Of course, the facts are as the Christians see them. So that's, that's the speech. And he talks there about his, uh, you know, desire to, uh, to demolish all of the synagogues in Seville. Uh, he claims that there are at least 23 of them in Seville. I, I don't know if that number can be trusted, um, but that's what he says. So we don't know what happened with this case, and we don't know what the outcome was. We don't know if what the verdict was, but we do know that nothing happened to Ferran Martinez. He continued as before. He continued being a judge, a royal judge, and ecclesiastical judge, and canon, and so Apparently, nothing really happened. So this is where we get pretty close to 1391. And again, the political situation in Castile has everything to do with what happened. Um, because in 1390, the Archbishop of Seville died. And shortly after that, the King of Castile died. And the King left behind a son who was only 11 years old. There were a lot of royal minority in Castile during this period. You know, they, they, the most important nobles, members of the royal family, they made decisions on the young king's behalf and they were constantly fighting among each other. And everyone knew that it was totally dysfunctional. So at this point, Ferran Martinez, in December of 1390, issues his famous 
letter or he sends a series of letters just like like he had done in 1377 he sends out these letters this time to the parish clergy not to the municipal councils but to the uh local clergy in the towns like Carmona and Ethica and uh Alcala de Guadaira and some other towns around Seville saying that the local synagogues that had been built without an authorization from the king have to be demolished. And apparently, at least in some of these towns, synagogues were demolished. We don't know exactly where. Um, I think in Ethica, it actually was demolished. And that is, of course, an intrusion on the royal authority, big time. The Castilian law said the king decides what happens with the synagogues. Um, but the archbishop is dead. The king is a minor. Uh, and Ferran Martinez is still a provisor. He's still the ecclesiastical judge. So he's one of those in charge of the archdiocese. So he has the big authority. And one thing I forgot to kind of emphasize is that, you know, there were plenty of opportunities for the municipal council, for the cathedral chapter to stop Martinez. The fact that they did not do so is very telling, even though in the end they repudiated his actions and said they did not agree with him at all. They had over a decade to actually prevent these things from happening. <laughs> and they didn't because Ferran Martinez was one of their own. He was, uh, he was their man. He, was, he, repre he represented their interests, the interests of these people, both the cathedral chapter and the municipal council. And these people, um, ultimately, they didn't really care about the Jews that much. But so it was certainly in their interests to bring down those synagogues. It was in their interests to destroy the, the Huderia, which is ultimately what happened after 1391 when the, the Jewish quarter was abolished and it was divided by Christians into several parishes and the synagogues were converted into churches. So all that property went to Christians and Jews were scattered throughout the city. There were still some living in the Huderia, but, you know, it was a big power play, uh, ultimately, on the, on the Christians' part. Maybe they didn't quite plan it that way, but they knew that Ferran Martinez was doing what they wished they had the, the guts to do. <laughs> and he represented their interests. Um, and in the end, they didn't stop him until it was too late. Um, so in early in January of 1391, there was um, a meeting of the cathedral chapter during which, well, essentially the Regency Council finally said enough is enough. All the synagogues had been destroyed. What is going to happen next? The Jews are going to be attacked and killed. They, they knew exactly what was coming. So they said, okay, cathedral chapter, if you don't stop this man now, you're going to have to pay. I'm, I'm gonna, we're gonna find each individual member of the chapter, each individual canon, I think like something like a thousand gold doblas, some really substantial fine. If anything happens to the Jews, you're gonna pay literally <laughs> with, your, with your money. And it was at that point that finally something was done. It was remembered that Ferran Martinez had been criticized before by the archbishop for questioning the authority of the Pope. Uh, a few years back, there was some invest investigation that found that Ferran Martinez was saying some 
things that were borderline heretical, that uh, the Pope had no authority to uh, allow Jews to build synagogues, or he had no authority to allow priests to marry. Of course, if you put these things into context, everyone was questioning the authority of the Pope at the time. Now, this is the time of the great schism of the church, when there were two popes, one in Avignon and one in Rome, and the prestige of the papacy was at the all-time low, possibly. However, you can't talk about the Pope's power, about Pope's authority. You can question the Pope's authority in front of you know, ordinary people. That's uh, dangerous. That's heretical. So all of the things finally kind of came together in January of uh, 1391. And uh, finally, Ferran Martinez was stripped of his, uh, uh, of his uh, position as a, an ecclesiastical judge. He was still a royal judge, though. <laughs> no one stripped him of that authority, which really shows you how dysfunctional this whole situation was. In fact, the Regency Council was still sending letters to Ferran Martinez in the spring of 1391, asking him to take care of some judicial matters in Seville because he was still a royal judge. Um, so after that, we don't really know what happens to Martinez. He kind of disappears from the records for a while. We don't know if he personally led the people uh, on their assault of the Jewish community. He's not mentioned as being you know, on the forefront of, of the crowd attacking the, the Jews. Here's what we know. Um, in March, or possibly February, the records are contradictory. Either in, in February or March, there was an attempted um, uh, riot, anti-Jewish riot in Seville, um, when... Uh, um, the, the, there was a Christian a mob of, of Christians who um, uh, who gathered in Seville um, after municipal officials had uh, ordered that some Christians you know were to be whipped for insulting the Jews, calling calling them dogs or some other names, and so the, the Christian mob gathered and tried to go after these officials and. Uh, only with great difficulty, difficulty was the, this attempt at, uh, at the riot put down. I, I also have to say that this was a very, very difficult time for Seville, you know, after the death of uh, King Juan I. There was just a general disintegration of public order. There were these aristocratic factions fighting against each other, gathering bands of fighting men who went around the city, disturbing public order. So everything just kind of disintegrated. And this was a very, very dangerous moment for the Jewish community. So after this attempted riot, things kind of calmed down in Seville, but not in Ethica. Um, in Ethica, there was just a volume of new documents that had been published several years ago. So Ethica is this town not that far from Seville. And in May of 1391, uh, I mean, this actually probably should be considered the beginning of the riots, anti-Jewish riots. So the Jews were attacked in Ethica and their property was seized by the mob 
And so the Jews in Ethical had to seek protection in the royal castle. So, uh, so there was an attempted murder of Jews, and only you know the the, the walls of the local castle saved them. Um, and uh, after that, so this is May. Maybe within within a couple of weeks, a riot erupted in Seville. Again, the dates are a little unclear. Uh, based on the Jewish source, it was June 4th. Based on the Christian source, it was June 6th. And that's where we don't know <laughs> what happens because there are no sources. Um, we don't know exactly what happened. We only know that, no, the Jewish source says that the Jewish quarter was attacked and 4,000 Jews were killed, which is a, an, an impossibility because there were just not that many Jews in Seville. I mean, that might have been the entire population of Seville, 4,000 people. We don't know for sure, um, but it's almost certainly an exaggerated number. Nevertheless, the number of those killed was probably counted in the hundreds. And unfortunately, this is where the dearth of documentation from Castile is, is really annoying because we don't get the full picture of what happened during the riot. We know there were killings and robberies. We also know that after this happened in Seville and the local municipal council was unable to protect the Jews, the violence spread to Cordoba, uh, to Toledo, and then it spread eastward into the crown of Aragon. And then it just spread like wildfire up, up the coast to the city of Valencia and then Barcelona. Perpignan and all these, you know, cities of the eastern seaboard, including and also some cities in more inland, Tortosa, and so forth. Um, now, the details of those riots are actually much better known. I'm not really the greatest authority to talk about the riots in the Kingdom of Aragon, so I would send everyone to read this book by Benjamin Gampel, that was published several years ago. It's called Anti-Jewish Riots and the in the Crown of Aragon and the Royal Response, 1391 to 1392. And he gives uh, a very detailed picture based on the available documentation in Aragon, which, I as I said, is much richer than anything in Castile. Uh, but there are some really interesting details about what happened, who participated in the riots. And his main conclusion, I think, is that it would be wrong to see these rights as consistent just of, you know, members of the lower classes, you know, the uh, sailors and the poor people, even though they did participate undoubtedly, but they were also men, you know, of higher classes, the clergy, members of the religious orders, uh, even members of the royal court who, who participated in this violence. So it was really a mass movement against the Jews. And, in each city, it was obviously triggered by the news. So you, you can call this copycat violence. You know, it's a very well-known phenomenon even today when news spread of a violent episode somewhere, there are other people who want to imitate it. And so new, the news traveled very quickly. There were people who went back and forth, special runners who, who were responsible for delivering news because this was also you know, very important area commercially. There were all these market news that had to be spread as well. So the news of the anti-Jewish riots 
spread from Seville to other cities. In Valencia, in fact, in early July, when the local people rioted against the Jews, they they marched on the local Jewish quarter shouting that the Archdeacon of Castile is going to come and convert all the Jews to Christianity. So they knew about Tiran Martinez in Valencia. So that's how um, famous or notorious, rather, he became uh, in both Castile and Aragon. I didn't want to interrupt because you were giving a really thorough um, um, overview of the whole uh, subject. And I, and I would add that no matter the number, exact number in Seville, I mean, kind of, I, I would assume that the Jewish community was was basically destroyed. And that was, whatever the number is, 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 is a massive amount of Jews and a terrible loss of life because of for the community size at the time right so just either way that 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 was terrible um uh, you know that other book and and your other article i will i'll link um below so i i think the question to ask you here really is the follow-up is so essentially why do you think that ferran martinez's his role i think was or is being overstated or was overstated because kind of how you laid it out yeah, maybe, like you're saying, we don't know, we don't have documentation that he exactly instigated the actual riot that started this kind of copycat spread of violence, but he kind of, I don't know, lit the match. He kind of caused what was going to happen. So I guess it, it, maybe, maybe like you're saying, is it overstated? Or on the other hand, maybe it's not, because he kind of was the instigator behind all of this. I think his role in Seville is not overstated. I think he did lit the match um, with his uh, provocations that went back many years. I think he gave Christians permission. He said, you know, nothing is going to happen to you. There will be no consequences. And what people kind of maybe secretly wanted to do, but hesitated to do, because there was a fear of punishment, uh, Martinez convinced them, somehow managed to convince them that, you know, they can do this, they can kill Jews, and they will not be punished by the king. And the king was a minor. And you know what? Nothing actually happened to the to Ferran Martinez for several years after the riots. He continued just as you know he had before. He he still had his properties. Um, he was still the canon at the Cathedral of Seville. Um, I'm not sure about the royal the royal judge. He may have had to relinquish that. But three years after the riot, the king, who was now you know, he finally came of age. He was still a very young man. But he came to Seville. You know, the king has to personally come to Seville to take to to take care of the... And it's, it, it really went beyond the anti-Jewish, right? There were, there were all kinds of issues with the violation of public order and all these aristocratic factions and just the talk, breakdown of public order, essentially. Um, so the king finally comes to Seville and he imposes a punishment on Ferran Martinez and the punishment on the city. Uh, the city had to, part, to pay a substantial fine. But uh, Ferran Martinez, from the very beginning, everyone named him as being responsible for the first, for the first riot. And of course, part of it is a little bit of a scapegoating. You know, here is a man, if he's responsible, then no one else is, right? It's all his fault. We're not to blame. Um, in fact, the cathedral chapter was absolved of any guilt. In the royal letter, it says that the canons of, at the cathedral are not going to be fined because it was all Martinez's fault. And in fact, the members of the cathedral chapter tried to protect the Jews and stop the violence. I don't know if it's true, but 
that's what the royal letter says. So it was obviously very convenient to blame Ferran Martinez. Um, I, I don't think we should discount his role. At the same time, I don't think we should discount the role of all these people who secretly cheered for him and supported him. They may not have been out there giving anti-Jewish sermons or issuing these orders to demolish synagogues. But when they could do something, they did. They, they completely failed to prevent this violence because they, they secretly understood that what Ferran Martinez was saying was actually in their own interests. Uh, and they failed to prevent it. And so they bear a great deal of responsibility. If we're talking, I mean, it's hard. It's, I don't know if we can assign responsibility to people who lived in the 14th century, but I feel like maybe, maybe it is appropriate. You know, I think they were, they were in many ways responsible for this. And then once the violence spread out of Seville, um, I mean, there, you know, violence like that does not happen in a place that has harmonious interfaith relations. And there are some historians who say without Castile, you know, no violence would have happened in Aragon. You know, if it hadn't been for Ferran Martinez and the example from Castile, possibly there wouldn't have happened anything in Aragon either. And it's possibly it's correct. Um, I mean, it is copycat violence, but there, you can't discount those pre-existing tensions in all of the cities like Valencia and Barcelona and all these other places. Um, why should they follow the example of Castile? Why is it such a tempting, uh, tempting thing to do to their Jews what Ferran Martinez had done in Seville? Why is it, what makes it so tempting? Uh, why do they have to uh, follow this example? That's the, that's the real question. I mean, to put it in general terms, is like he was like the radical anti-Semite in the open and they were like, there was the simmering anti-Semitism below and they were like, yeah, we agree, but we don't want to go out and say it. So I think the, the last kind of thing that I'll ask you here um, as, we, as we finish up is that, I mean, was this kind of a precursor to the expulsion which happened about 100 years after? Well, you know, among historians, there had been a real pushback against kind of making a direct link between 1391 and 1492. and um, there is one historian, Mark Meyerson, at the University of Toronto, who published a book quite a few years ago, in which he showed that some Jewish communities uh, continued to flourish in the 15th century. And we do know that the general kind of demographic movement in the 15th century for the Jews was leaving the big cities and moving to smaller places, uh, sometimes under the jurisdiction of uh, the noble. Um, some noble family where they could be protected. So there, undoubtedly there were some Jewish communities that, that did quite well in the 15th century. But that does not um, negate the fact that during 1391, but even more so in the years following 1391, there were so many Jews who, you know, Besides, you know, being converted forcibly during the riots, there were many Jews who chose conversion afterwards because they were so demoralized and left. They felt like they had no options. While some, of course, persisted in their faith, some immigrated to Granada, let's say, or North Africa, which also kind of weakened the Jewish community in Christian Spain, of course. Um, so many, there were now so many converted Jews 
that they became a, a very substantial part of the population. They were called conversos or new Christians. And they were not quite accepted into their new community. They, they, they were no longer Jews, but they were not quite Christian either. And so what we see in the, you know, by the middle of the 15th century is uh, the beginning of this real hatred of conversos and, and the converso riots, like the one in Toledo, which in many ways resembles the 1391 riot. Except this time, it's not the Jews, but the conversos who are the target of the violence and the hatred. Um, and the conversos were doing really well. You know, they were they were no longer prevented from you know taking positions of power or entering the church and so forth because they were Christians, right? Um, but this anti-converso sentiment and this suspicion—they were not really Christians, probably because you know there's something about them. There's something, some Jewish blood that prevents them from becoming fully Christians, fully Christian, and. This is really the, the suspicion that leads to the establishment of the Spanish Inquisition. The task of the Spanish Inquisition was to root out those insincere Christians, the, the heretical Christians, that is to say, Jews practicing, I mean, Christians practicing Judaism in secret, so the crypto Jews. So in that sense, you know, 1391, you know, there's definitely a direct link between that and uh, the conversos and the Spanish Inquisition. And then when Fernando and Isabel, the Catholic monarchs, decided the Inquisition is not really fulfilling their task or their goal um, of, you know, incorporating all these new Christians into the greater Christian society, that the Jews somehow sabotaged these efforts by... Um, communicating with the conversos and trying to lure them back to their old faith. That's when they decide we could no longer have a have Jews in our kingdom. Now it's a unified kingdom because Fernando and Isabel Castile and Aragon became a very imperfect kingdom, but kingdom ruled jointly. Well, two kingdoms ruled jointly by Fernando and Isabel. Um, but the, the expulsion was in 1492 was kind of the last ditch effort, you know, the, the final solution in a way to this uh, perceived problem that that the, the remaining Jews were leading the new Christians astray from the true faith. So 1391 is definitely the beginning, very well, very early beginning of the converse problem. And the converse problem gives us the Inquisition and the expulsion. So it's, it's more or less an indirect, direct link, so to speak. So, yeah, um, you know, very interesting. And, and, and thank you very much uh, for joining me. Like I said, I'll include the links in the uh, in the show's notes. Most of our discussion here, this is what you're working on in your new book. Any idea when, when that, how far away that is? Well, um, hope to finish in the next uh, several years. Um, I have a, a large chunk of it written. Uh, I just had a sabbatical. So that, um, that's why I was able to make a lot of progress. Of course, another sabbatical is not due for many years, <laughs> six, seven years. There is a chance that I might get a fellowship. If anyone wants to give me a fellowship, here I am. Um, and then I will give, get some more time. Um, uh, otherwise, I'll just have to sneak in some writing in between classes and during 
winter and summer break. As you can probably tell, I'm pretty excited about this project. Uh, and uh, I think it's going really well. And all it really, all I really need right now is to sit down and write as quickly as I can. <laughs> okay, sounds good. So we'll, uh, we'll keep an eye out for it. So looking forward. Thank you very much for joining me once again. You're very welcome. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you.